This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. What are we going to do about ESG, environmental, social, and governance? Well, once you figure it out, how are you going to communicate that plan and message to all the right constituents, such as the shareholders, consumers, and other interested parties? What's the best way to tell our story? To answer that question, Jeff Risley. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joel. So you uh, help companies... uh, put important info into the marketplace. You, you don't actually do the ESG part. You tell you take their ESG info or, or whatever critical issue it is, and you put it in the marketplace for them. That's right. We're, okay, so go we're marketing and storytellers. So, so are, you, are you a PR firm or what are you? Well, we're actually, Saxon's actually an integrated agency. So by integrated, we mean public relations, advertising, uh, public affairs, digital marketing, you pretty much need to be able to do it all these days because of the way people consume information. And we also like to say that we're obsessed for good. So a lot of the work we're doing is helping clients tell their purpose story. You know, what is it that they're doing, not just to help make money for their shareholders, but also to do better in the world in general. Does that mean that you pick clients that are already doing good or do you help clients that are not so good be a little better? (laughs) Well, it's a great question. We do both. Uh, There's obviously, most companies are out there trying to do the best job they possibly can while they're taking care of whoever the owner or shareholder is, you know, continuing to drive profits, continuing to take care of customers. But there's just a movement that's been taking place now for the last several years that business is looking you know, people are looking to businesses to help solve a lot of other problems than just buy products from them. So as a marketer and a communicator, you know, Saxon's generally trying to help them not only drive their marketing and sales, but tell that bigger story about the good they're doing in the world. You know, there's there's been a, a kind of a debate in the business world for years about the purpose of business. Business exists to serve its shareholders. That's kind of an old-fashioned view but now it's kind of been expanded that they have certain obligations to the community at large. You know, are you guys in the middle of that conversation at all? Or is that something that's part of what you talk about at your, at your office? You're absolutely right. We are definitely in the middle of that conversation and we're going to fall on the side of, you know, the purpose of business is much more about serving all stakeholders than just your shareholders. So it's funny story. I was at a conference last week. It was all on sustainability and one of the speakers, who is the former CEO of Unilever, basically said, uh, Paul Pullman is his name, said, you know what? Milton Friedman's dead. And for the last 50 years, business has been doing a great job taking care of one of the stakeholders. But now we really got to do a lot more to take care of all stakeholders. And, and that's where your first question came in. You know, the how are we impacting the environment? How are we impacting society in general, whether that's diversity, equity, and inclusion? And you know, our governance structure? Are we, you know, structured in a way that's not being, that's being equitable to all the parties involved? So it's gotten more complex as a business owner now. And so we're trying to help clients do what they've always done, which is grow, but also tell this bigger story if they're indeed trying to make some sort of impact in the world. Yeah. You know, I talk a lot about trends and I was speaking to an audience recently and 
one of the questions was, uh, do I believe that ESG is a trend or a fad, just a short-term deal that's going to kind of flame out? Ah. Before I get my answer, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm definitely on this. This is not a fad. So if regardless of your politics, regardless of why you started your business, um, there are a couple of things underlying what I think is this trend. So number one, consumers. Consumers are, especially Gen Z, are asking that their products that they buy have more to them than just serving my product need. I need it to be more sustainable. I want to know what its environmental footprint was, et cetera. Uh, the other thing is investors. I mean, there is tons of capital, as you know, in the market ready to be put to work. And a lot of that capital wants to go into businesses that are telling or doing something for the, the greater good. Um, so we're seeing, I think, a sea change in business. I mean, you know, the business roundtable came out with a whole new you know, purpose of business um, description that walked away from you know, the Milton Friedman days. Davos, it's definitely a trend in my opinion. So I'd love to hear your opinion, though, too. Well, you know, listen, my, no, my, uh, what, what I told this audience was that uh, the noise is fad. All the yeah. yelling and screaming, that, that's going to kind of die down over time. And in the last even six months, it's starting to slow down a little bit. You know, since our last president, uh, things are calming down and people are not on fire like they were before. Uh, ESG is, is certainly a, a trend, you know, a long-term trend, but I think it even goes further. Because uh, right now, all of this stuff is voluntary. Companies are supplying this information voluntarily. But soon, the SEC will begin to require it as part of the uh, S-1 filings and as part of the, the, uh, the 10Ks, the 10Qs, and all the other stuff that gets filed when companies either go public or make their annual reporting. And when that happens, then it doesn't, it's not even a trend anymore. Then it becomes part of the long-term fabric of our society. So it, it's here to stay. Uh, you know, it's, this is kind of how I analyze things. I mean, you know, short, medium, and long. So trend is medium. Long-term mm -hmm. is when the government finally puts it into the regulations and requires it to be submitted on an annual basis or, or, or more often even. And what's yep. interesting, it is, it is very interesting to me, uh, you bring up the shareholders, all these investors, uh, there are specific private equity groups that just look for environmentally friendly organizations or certain kinds of political preferences, whatever those are, about who they do business with. That's correct. And you're spot on about uh, regulation. That's coming. And I think the SEC is going to be one of the first. There are, of course, all of these standard setting bodies out there, GRI, SASB, that are now being used by companies to help frame up their particular uh, sustainability or ESG um, work. But it's it, there's going to be consolidation probably in that. And then you've got the ratings agencies. All the ratings agencies are looking at these companies, too, to understand whether they're doing something in the ESG space. So our kind of take on all this is, look, if that's what's coming, number one, get ahead of it before you're told what to do. Number two, make it part of your brand. I mean, this is a way to stand out and be different from all those other companies out there who are operating the same way they always have. And there's a ton of great examples out there. Um, just, just again, one of my favorite brands, Allbirds. Never, I don't know if you ever heard of them or not, but they're a great shoe company. And they have sustainability at the core of who they are. Um, and they work really hard to make sure the product is environmentally friendly and uses you know, minimal 
footprint on, on the earth, but they're also very devoted to the S. Um, in fact, the S in ESG, we will likely see taking a huge front stage in the next several years because, again, consumers are, dri- are really driving brands to do something about their social impact. You know, are you being um, as diverse as you possibly can in your hiring? What is your board made of from a diversity standpoint? Um, do you have policies in place to actually show us? And when you've got all of these people in the market now looking for jobs, talent who are jumping in the great resignation, they're trying, we've found they're trying to find places that have ESG in place because they want to work for companies that are purpose-driven. Yeah. You know, there's a whole other uh, thing that uh, is about to happen, whether you are familiar with this or not. You know, that whole S component you're talking about, that social component, that's Mm going to break off into a a whole other... whole other set of regulatory requirements that fall into the category of human capital reporting. And, and here's, here's why. Uh, it's not just the, uh, the DEI, the diversity, equity, inclusion part. It's because the biggest asset that most companies have, the biggest expense that most companies have is, uh, is payroll, is the human beings that work there. And in a very funny way, it escapes all of the accounting analysis that every other asset on the balance sheet uh, is subject to. So a lot of companies are putting, uh, they have off balance sheet workers, other gig workers mm-hmm. uh, that, are, that are not being reported the same way. And so the, the government is very concerned about this. And in a certain way, investors are very concerned about this because it's not uh, full disclosure to those people. And the government wants them to have more transparency into who works at these companies. What's the attitude? How many errors are they making? How you know what's the what's the uh, fatality rate on the on the shop floor or the injury rate? And all this kind of stuff uh, is is going to be built into some regulatory frameworks not very long from now. So get ready. There's another wave coming. I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's so many organizations out there, and, and the accounting profession is one that's you know a little slower to adopt. My wife's an accountant, CPA, so they you know they're going to be very sure of themselves before they uh, amend standards. But I think you're absolutely on. There's um, the IFAC has the accounting for sustainability. You know they're they're working on accountability or standards for sustainability now. So I think you're spot on. This is going to show up in a lot of ways. Well, I, I came from the CPA business uh, early in my career. So I'm, I'm uh, accountants don't make changes. Accountants <laughs> follow rules. No, it's, it's right. They, they don't, the government is going to say, we need human capital reporting. Yeah. And then accountants are going to have to do it. And the truth is they don't really know how to analyze uh, human capital. That's sure. kind of a, a very a fuzzy asset class that they really don't know how to get their arms around. It's like inventory, you go out, you count it, you deploy a team of people, they count the inventory in the whole warehouse. Not easy to do uh, with people. It's not quite the same because it's not just how many of them are there, how are they classified, what's happening with them, what's their state of mind. You know, there's all these other measures that are happening. So there is a sea change of things on the horizon. Totally agree. And I think what's interesting is, and this is, again, the role Saxon plays, is how do you make sense of this to all your different stakeholders? So you mentioned the noise. How do you separate noise from signal? And and that's really our job. So, for example, we'll work with clients who have maybe never put out an ESG report. They're just trying to put a strategy together. 
that makes sense and it's not separate from all the other communication they're doing, not just another check the box thing. It's we want to we want to talk about this because it's central to our brand, but we also want to be honest about it. We're not going to greenwash. And we want our customers, number one, to understand that we are trying to make efforts here, whether we're setting targets or not. And that's generally where we pick up clients for the first time. Then they they start maturing in their ESG story and strategy. And we start talking about it in ways that um, that integrated into their overall marketing. And they start generally, you know, then being more consistent with different levels of information for the different audiences. So for example, your investors are going to want very detailed information about the data, but your customers generally want to see great social media graphics. They want to see great information on your website about what you're doing and why. So that's really our role is to help them make sense of this and put together a strategy for their storytelling that will then carry them into the future. Do you go as far as helping them to craft the strategy or do you guys just tell the story of the strategy that they've come up with independent of you? It it really depends a little bit of both. So most times they have a, a consultant who is helping them Uh, put together an ESG strategy, which is really more based on data. So in the environmental, it's whether they're, you know, scope one and two emissions or scope three emissions. Um, For the social, it's what kind of policies they have in place, governance, you know, what is your governance structure? And then we'll step in and we'll put one foot in that world to understand the data because we understand the rating agencies and the frameworks and how they want to then start releasing this information. So we capture it there and then put together the strategy to help tell the story. So we're really doing both. Help us understand, uh, you know, what, what kind of uh, <clears throat> allocation or balance do you do between, say, video, other kinds of media, social media? I mean, how do you kind of allocate? Is it 60, 40, 20, 30, 10? You know, I mean, I mean, how do you organize that? It's a great question. Um, I wish there was a formula but it honestly depends on your customer base. So if you're B2B, um, we're going to do things probably a little bit. We think of, let me frame it up this way. We think of things in terms of paid, earned, and owned channels, Joel. So um, if you're a B2B customer, you're a client who's serving B2B customers, you're generally going to be thinking more about your owned media channels. So your website, your email list, the people you can reach, you know, that you already know. Now, if you're a B2C company, you're generally thinking about more paid probably than owned, but it's all a mix among those three things. We're going to allocate resources based on where your particular audience learns about you. And I will tell you, I've been doing this for almost 30 years now. In the last 10 years, especially with COVID, it has changed massively. And digital, if you're not digital, you don't exist. If you're not found in search, you don't exist. If you don't found, if you're not found within the first three or four results in organic search on Google, you don't exist. So it's it's much much more about a digital play. Sure, TV is out there, radio, traditional places, but it's so fragmented that you have to understand your audience and work backwards from them. Yeah, um, <clears throat> newspapers, TV. Have you ever heard, you heard of newspapers? That's from a long time ago. It's a thing, you know. I, oh, don't worry. I still subscribe, and <laughs> but I'll tell you what, my kids don't. So you know, yeah, my my kids don't either. You know, listen, and I I subscribe to read the Wall Street Journal because that right. sort of seems to make it happen for me. But uh, TV, radio, newspapers, a lot of those things are so generic that they don't really you know get the hit the button anymore and. 
Uh, they're not priced the way that uh, digital marketing is and so forth. So, well, well, and look at you. I mean, you're a, a very successful podcaster. This is a channel that didn't even exist, you know, 15 years ago. And now guys like you who have great audiences are way more valuable than, you know, a TV spot who's going to have tons of waste, right? So that's the way we have to think about this now is what is the best way that the audience is going to be consuming information as opposed to the easiest way for me to push it out? Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's funny. I mean, I had a guy recently who uh, wanted to put an advertisement or something. We don't take advertisements on our show. There, We don't do any of that. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I just prefer to kind of keep it clean and nice. But uh, I think they offered a, uh, it, was a it was like a per listener number. Well, first of all, you can't tell how many listeners because it spreads out over so many channels. You don't really know. And, you know, like it, it distributes so widely that you don't know how many people are listening. There's, they have a way there's a sense about it, but mm-hmm. they don't totally know. The other thing is um, this isn't going to have millions of, of subscribers like a television channel. It might have a couple thousand or 10,000, but they're friggin' great, great, great people. You know, That's right. So it's a smaller audience, but it's very concentrated with really high quality people for some people. I mean, it may not That's be right. a high quality audience if you're selling uh, toys or it That's... may not be a high quality thing if you're trying to get a lot of consumers to come see your movie. That's right. But the audience that we have of senior executives I and mean, these guys, these people have a lot of buying power for certain kinds of assets and certain kinds of things. So. That's it, right. It just depends. So how do you guys push meshes out there? Give us give us a little bit of intel about how it works. What's the secret sauce for, you know, having a successful campaign? Sure. Well, I would say to simplify it, um, you really need two things right now more than anything else. And that's the right technology and then the right strategy. So before anybody starts diving into tactics, um, think about strategy and think about what your what we call our marketing technology stack looks like. Because in today's world, it's very possible for us to get incredibly close to -to one-to-one communication. But you can't do that, nor can you prove what's working unless you have the right technical components in place. So, for example, I'm talking about a customer relationship management software. Um, That is kind of your base MarTech stack tool that you need. Um, It's where visitors to your website who ultimately give you an email address will live. And it's one of the most important lists of people you have, somebody who's volunteered themselves. Then there's a marketing automation layer, right? So this makes it easier for me as a marketer to actually customize my messages to all these different audiences. So no more spray and pray. You've got to be very specific in your messaging. Um, and then that third level is your what we call our content management system. That's usually what your website is built on. And then it's your social content management system. Those are the tools that are managing your social uh, interactions, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or whatever it might be. All of those things work together. So for example, if uh, Joel, I you know, was putting together a marketing plan for you and you had this tech stack in place and you put a tweet out about something, ultimately I'd be able to track whether somebody clicked on that tweet, went to your website and ultimately became a lead and bought something from you, and I could prove it to you. That is what is so critical today, because if we know that, we can then put money in marketing where it's making the most difference, as opposed to betting on where it might work. So so you just said, put out a tweet or some kind of a post, 
It drives a person to a website where they buy something and then you can tell. I, I get that. Uh, I'm on top of that too. And But I have a little bit of a different approach okay. uh, because that whole approach is all passive. That assumes the person sees something, they like it, they buy it. There's no human interaction. The way I use a lot of this technology for clients of ours and for ourselves, even for our company, is get the tweet to send them where they register and then somebody calls them and talks to them about whatever the deal is. It's a different kind of sale. Concepts very similar to yours. Uh, maybe it's a higher ticket item that requires a salesperson to intervene. Yes. But most of the things that we build are always about having a salesperson involved in the process. I, I, you're spot on, Joel, because with the example I just gave, think um, Amazon or B2C place where you, you can make a purchase decision through e-commerce pretty simply. Now, in the B2B world, when we're helping clients, we do exactly what you do. The, the service we provide, the solution is called revenue marketing. The idea is marketing should be as responsible for generating sales as your salespeople. They need to work hand in glove. So that salesperson needs to know that the lead they got, where it came from and why, so that they can make a great you know, discovery call or connection with them. Um, so we're, we're very much working with clients to help them not only feed the top of the funnel, but then nurture those leads as they go through and giving them valuable information that makes them more um, easy for the salesperson to develop that relationship with. Does that yes. make sense? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, of course. I, I love that. Uh, you know, I think also that marketing needs to stand, in, <clears throat> stand on its own two feet. It's it's not, it, you know, it's not like sales is direct and marketing is an indirect expense. I mean, sales and marketing need to kind of be a lot closer together. And many companies, uh, they don't work that great together. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with, or do you guys use intent-based marketing tools? Are you familiar uh, with this? Yes, and yes, we do. So in, intent-based marketing is great. I mean, technology has done lots of things for marketing. Some of it is very difficult to get your mind wrapped around. But um, I think intent-based um, tools are helpful because they are doing just that. They're showing an intent that a buyer may have. Um, I think you can find useful ways to do that, but I don't think that's where you want to start necessarily. If you don't have the basic building blocks in place, then don't jump into some you know shiny object that supposedly will turn everything around for you. Yeah, that's, Get that's, that's probably great advice. Uh, one of the uh, trends in our trend report Power Tools and Fish Finders is all about intent-based technologies. Mm -hmm. for, for anyone who doesn't understand, uh, every time uh, you do a Google search and you say, uh, looking for a house in Las Vegas, the next minute you're going to see an ad for a realtor company in Las Vegas. But not only does it show up on your computer, but a, a salesperson from the Las Vegas office may call you and say, hey, I heard you're thinking about moving to Las Vegas which, which is kind of creepy, yep, yep. You know, but, but we're kind of getting used to creepy because we kind of know how it works. <laughs> and, and you go, uh, you know, the person says, hey, look, when you come to town, can we meet and I'll show you around? And you're thinking to yourself, you know, number one, it's an aggressive person, which is good. I mean, it, it, look, the guy took the initiative to call you, but mm -hmm. you're thinking, what am I going to do? Open the yellow pages and look for, for just a stranger or <laughs> now I already got a friend here, you know? So they yes. know your intent and they monetize your intent. That's what intent-based marketing, it's a very powerful system. Mm -hmm. What other cool things, what are some cool things that you've seen, some cool techniques? You know, I think now that, you know, the ad, the paid advertising, digital advertising world is so different than it was 
Um, I'm sure you've heard of programmatic, you know, advertising, right? So the idea now that there's a marketplace for advertising and buyers and sellers are coming together to bid on that space so that we can, you know, best put a message in front of a particular audience. So the downside with it, though, is that if you're not completely transparent about the way that works, there's a lot of funny money going on in the background. So you know, our paid media service is very much as transparent as we can make it. In some cases, we can't look inside the black box that programmatic has, but we are trying to be very upfront with the client to say, look, we're, we're not about just putting ads out there and hoping we are working through these very technical uh, digital channels to find where your customer might be or potential customer might be. And we have to test constantly. So set it and forget it is kind of gone. We're optimizing continually based on the feedback and data we get from all of these systems. But is that is that happening using AI or is that happening because you have analysts that are sitting there doing the work? You know, in our case, it's because we have analysts doing the work in our in our paid media department. AI can do that as well. I still think, though, that there are uh, it's better done by humans who understand the context around what's happening. Um, we still are a creative business at the end of the day, and we can't turn our creativity over to a machine, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, you know, there's certain parts of it you can turn over so you can be more creative. You're right. That's where the marketing automation comes in. So if you have a, if you have a, you know, a, a database of 10,000 emails that you know are sub-segmented already into different types of uh, prospects, you don't want to push an email out to each one of them because you have a variety of them. You're going to customize emails, build workflows, and on the actions they take, whether they open it or respond to it, you're going to then automate your next response to them. That's the marketing automation part of this that has helped, you know, make it more efficient so we can be more creative. Hey, you know, on a, on a totally different topic. Yeah. How up to speed would you say most of your clients are about the techniques that you're describing? Is this like a foreign language to a lot of them? Or are they like, oh, yeah, I'm totally familiar with this. Let's get rolling. Great question, Joel. It's um, I'm telling you, it's all over the board, uh, generally depending on the industry they're in. That's a big general statement. So B2C customers, our, our clients are much more up to speed with this because they've been doing it a lot longer. B2B clients generally are a little further behind in this space. And then you can kind of divide B2B into the different verticals and get a sense of where they are. Um, but most are attempting to do something like I'm talking about with revenue marketing. They either don't know where to start or they don't have enough people internally to help, you know, required in the specialist, you know, skill sets you need to pull it off. Um, and they've got the demands of, you know, a C-suite to constantly be hitting numbers. So it takes a little upfront time and investment to make all of this work. But once you do, you know, it absolutely pays off. So when, when, uh, when you engage uh, with either uh, pre-existing clients or new clients, do you have to talk them into these initiatives or do they ask you, for some high-tech, cutting-edge, really effective kinds of approaches? I mean, how, how does that typically work? You know, in our case, uh, it starts with a, a business problem. So when we're talking to potential clients, 
Um, it's never about, hey, I need a website or, wow, can you please do this big paid media campaign for me? There's some pain they have, and we're trying to figure out what's causing that pain so that we can craft a solution for them. Um, so most of the time, they're not necessarily clear on what's causing all of that pain. And that's where we come in. We're trying to diagnose before we prescribe. Um, you know, in, in our case, that's really the consultative sale that we're working on. Yeah. And do and you find that they're uh, oftentimes open to that discussion uh, or, or are they like, you know what, we don't like a lot of this new stuff. We just kind of want to stick with what we know and because we can, we can measure that. They, they don't want to become overly dependent on a third party like you guys. No, we don't find that at all. In, in today's world, they're, everybody partners with everybody. And they're fine with it or else they wouldn't have you know, agreed to talk to us in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's, uh, yeah. that's really cool. So can you give us an example of uh, maybe some campaign that you guys ran or something that you did that would sort of exemplify this? I can. <clears throat> Let me, I'll, I'll give you a B2B and a B2C case. And a couple of our clients don't want us to mention their names, so I'm just going to refer to them generally. Um, one was a, a very large global chemical company, and one of their business units very much needed to do more revenue marketing. In other words, work more closely to track what marketing was working and what wasn't. And so in that case, the work we did for them was truly working backwards from the customer. We were able to put together what we call personas, persona maps and journey maps. So the way that who is buying from you exactly, what motivates them, that's called a persona map and how they buy is a journey map. And so we can then put our marketing strategy in place to reach them when they want to be reached in the different buying components. Um, you don't want to give the same message to them when they're not even aware of you and hit your website for the first time that they've been working with you for three months, you know, digesting white papers and other content. So that is really the baseline start for this revenue marketing. And it really helped them kind of open up the world there. On the B2C side, um, we're actually working with the state government um, to help them through the pandemic with a lot of their messaging on vaccination. And it was a really interesting um, campaign because we're not trying to sell anything, right? We're trying to get action out of an audience. And everybody knew what was going on, but in terms of you know, the pandemic and how to get it, but we were trying to motivate people to take that first step. And I'll tell you, no matter, Joel, how much technology is in place, you still have to have an emotional appeal in what you're doing. So we're, all we've been talking about here is technology in this last few minutes, but you still need to appeal to people's emotions, and that's where the creativity comes in. So we're generally thinking about it both from a tactical standpoint, but also strategically, how are we going to hook them so that we can drive some action out of them? Yeah. Listen, I, th I think that message applies to uh, all kinds of software. Buy this software, and then you can make pictures and paintings and I buy the software and I still can't make a picture or a painting, you know, <laughs> I, because it takes, it'll do 80% of the work, but there's still a creative element that professionals are really expert at. And that's what you're talking about. And, you know, the theme of the show is the inside track you know, the best, smartest or fastest way to, uh, to get something done. And you've really delivered on that promise, you know, by telling us kind of 
how it works, what happens, how the message gets delivered and how the message gets developed and so forth. And because you've, uh, because you've made good on the promise, that makes you an advantage player in our book. And uh, well, we thank appreciate you. you being on the show. Well, Joel, it's been a pleasure and really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I always enjoy it um, and happy to help you any way I can. Well, listen, man, thank you very much for, uh, for being with us and we'll, uh, we'll have to stay in touch. Okay. Very good. All right. Thanks. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Autovita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.